0: Turn to Mark Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, and today we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, demons, and Jesus' family, and so we are in for a treat, aren't we? Aren't we? Okay, Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be reading from verse 20 to Verse thirty-five, verse twenty-six. So, Mark chapter three, verse twenty to thirty-five. All right. Then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub And the prince of the demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan... <clears throat> But is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he was and he has an unclean spirit. And his brother and his and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your brother and your your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother, and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. All right, let's pray. God, we need you right now, to help us understand what you want to say to us through your word. We realize that we want understanding beyond our intellect. And knowing that, we realize that we cannot Understand is beyond our natural intellectual ability without your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, may your Holy Spirit illuminate and give us understanding that changes the way we live and that causes our hearts to treasure in Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Most of you know from London, growing up in London was fun. London's a big city, lots going on, music scene, fantastic food scene, big city, lots of people, very diverse. I always say London is an international city. If you head to London now, and you go to any part of London... You're not going to see segregation, you're going to see a blending of cultures and nationalities. An amazing city. I enjoyed living in London, grew up in London. But one thing um, I really disliked about growing up in London as a teenager was being um, often (laughs) arrested by the police um, for doing nothing. Okay? I remember one incident when me and my friends were in the mall and we were just hanging out, just just hanging out, just doing nothing. And we had no intentions. There were other times when we had intentions of doing things that weren't good. But this time round, we weren't doing anything bad. Um, And I remember the police stopping us um, and wanting to search us and just giving us a hard time And I struggled with that. And I struggled with that because uh, as a young man and as a human in general, I hate being falsely accused of something I didn't do. And this was what was happening. Um, I was being misunderstood and falsely accused um, for something I didn't do. I'm sure you've been misunderstood, I'm certain you've been falsely accused for saying something you didn't say or doing something you didn't do, okay? All of us have. And it's so difficult for us when someone chooses to believe the worst rather than the best um, about us. Jesus, our Savior, totally understands what we go through as far as being falsely accused. This is one of the things that makes him so unique. He is fully God. We believe that. But at the same time, he is fully man. And because of this reason, he can relate to us. Jesus can relate to us every one of our struggles, including being misunderstood and falsely accused. And so in our passage for today, Jesus is being misunderstood. He is being falsely accused and how he responds is genius. But it's not only that, but it reveals something about who he is and what he's calling us to. Firstly, Jesus is falsely accused by his family. And so this is what's happening. Let me give you guys some context. After recruiting his 12 disciples up on a mountain, Jesus comes down from the mountain, and verse 20 lets us know that he goes into a house. News of his location spreads, and within an hour, a huge crowd has formed outside the house. Verse 20 tells us, okay? As we've seen often in Jesus' life, similar to many of the celebrities in our modern times, it had got to a point where Jesus' fame and popularity had spread so far and so wide. Everywhere he went, crowds would follow him. It was gnarly, all right? It was crazy. This time round, it says to us, right, it's telling us that the crowd is so large and so demanding He doesn't even have time to eat. And so when Jesus' family hear about this and hear about all that he's been doing and saying, they're concerned. So they begin to believe he's out of his mind. All right? Look at verse 21. Okay, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind mind. In other words, what they're saying is that, Jesus, you're crazy. Jesus, you're insane. According to his family, the best way to help was to force their way through the crowds so they can seize him and take him away. And they want to remove him from this situation because they're possibly concerned about his health okay? Um, He's overcrowded. He's overwhelmed. He's at the point of burnout, maybe. And because the crowds are so demanding, he doesn't even have time to eat. So his family are like, Jesus, this is bad for your health." health. And so they go in seeking to remove him from this situation. Maybe they also want to remove him from the situation because they're concerned for his, um, the reputation of their family. In Middle Eastern culture, honor and shame are one of the highest values. And because of this, one author suggests that Jesus' family may want to remove him from a situation that could reflect badly on the family. But it seems the main reason why they began to believe he was out of his mind and wanted to remove him from the situation was because of what Jesus said about himself. They were okay okay, with Jesus healing the sick and teaching powerfully and doing miracles and drawing large crowds, but they became concerned as soon as he started saying he was God. They became concerned. Very concerned when he started publicly announcing that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world. These claims were utterly shocking to them, and because of this, they started to think, Jesus is, Jesus is out of his mind. One author said his family, his own family, thought he had lost his mind and were trying to carry him off to some safe place where he could indulge his delusions without doing any harm to himself. And so that's what's going on. When I first read this passage, I was like, honestly, I was like, I I can't believe that Jesus' family really think he's crazy. I'm like, Jesus is killing it. He's healing people, casting out demons. He's doing all of these miracles. He's lecturing with authority and preaching powerfully. And his parents, his mom and his brothers um, think he's crazy. They think he's out of his mind. What has he done to deserve um, this viewpoint from his family? I couldn't believe they thought Jesus was out of his mind. It was shocking to me. But the more I reflected on this passage, the more I realized I'm no different to them. Okay? I, too... I'm honest with myself, have been guilty of assuming Jesus was out of his mind. I may not have said it, but my actions spoke louder than my words. There have been many times in my life where I have sensed Jesus telling me to do something, but I've not done it. And the reason is, I'm like, Jesus, that is quite extreme. That's quite radical. Jesus, you really want me to do that? Uh, Don't think I want to. The moment we begin to think or view some of the requirements and demands or expectations of Jesus as being too radical, then we may as well say, with our actions and those thoughts, that Jesus, you're just too radical. That's too crazy for me. You're you, you, you out of your mind. You really want me to do that? For real, Jesus? You're asking me to do that? Surely, Jesus, you're not asking me to do fill in the blank. And so what's Jesus telling you to do, that seems radical. And I'm not saying everything you read and want to apply, you you know, you're in community and sometimes God tells you something through his word, through a member, and you want to bring it to the community, but there are times where what we're hearing or reading may seem too radical and we reject it and we don't have time for it. And so the question is, what is Jesus asking you to do? That may seem radical. Because it's radical, because it seems over the top, doesn't mean he's not speaking and wanting you to do it. And so it may be a relationship, okay? Maybe an unhealthy relationship you're in of some sort. And Jesus is saying, this relationship is not good for you maybe it's your um, it's how you view the church and how you view the community you're in maybe jesus is saying hey begin to view this church that you're part of as a family and that changes everything what that means is that the people sitting next to you that you're doing life with are your brothers and sisters that's radical And if they're your family, you're going to see them and um, treat them differently. And so the question is, what's Jesus asking you to do? Surely, Jesus, you're not asking me to do fill in the blank. Again, the moment we begin to view some of Jesus' commands and expectations as radical and therefore not relevant, is the moment we unintentionally... Begin to think he's out of his mind. So, because of Jesus' radical way of life, his mother and his brothers are convinced he is out of his mind. As difficult as this was for Jesus, things don't get better, they get worse. His family think he's crazy, and now the scribes who are teachers of the law and prominent religious leaders of the time arrive from Jerusalem and put forward more accusations against Jesus. Let's read these accusations in verse 21 and 22. Everyone, let's read it. Look at it. It says, and when his family, let's start from verse 21 so we understand how crazy it is, okay? So verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. How do you pronounce that? Come and say it on the mic. No, I'm kidding. Um, Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. One author rightly says this. This was the most vicious Charge leveled against Jesus up to this point and perhaps in his whole life. Why is that? The name Beelzebub was a title used for Satan himself. So, for them to accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub was another way of saying that he was controlled by Satan. The religious leaders could not deny that Jesus had power. They had heard and even seen with their own eyes Jesus perform miracles. He healed the sick, cast out demons, preached powerfully, all of that. There was no denying that Jesus was a legit miracle worker, but... They struggled to believe that God would empower an uneducated carpenter from Nazareth to do such things. They were like, is Jesus from Nazareth. He's a carpenter, he's uneducated. How is he able to work powerfully? Plus, Jesus is against, right, or has been correcting everything we've been about. He's been opposing our religious way of life. So it doesn't make sense that Jesus is being empowered by God to do all these works. And so, the only logical conclusion was that if it's not God empowering Jesus to do all of these miraculous works, then it must be the devil. It must be Satan. This is why this was the most vicious accusation leveled against Jesus up to this point, and perhaps in his whole life. They are saying that Jesus' mighty acts, his miracles, are from the devil. So Jesus' family think he's crazy and now the religious leaders are under the impression that he's working for Satan. And so the question is, how does Jesus react? How does he respond to these accusations? He calls them over and says to them in verse 23 to 26, everyone, let's look at it. This is what Jesus says to these allegations about working with Satan and all of these things. He says, how can Satan... Cast out Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. With these words, Jesus exposes the foolishness (laughs) Of the accusations, it's a well-known fact that a house or a team or an army or any group of people that are divided, okay, eventually will will will, um, will be on the verge of collapse. Okay, any nation, any civil war within any nation, what happens? The nation ends up crumbling and falling apart because there's this unity and division within that nation and so in other words jesus is saying hey guys your accusations don't make sense at all if satan is empowering me to uh, cast out his demons then he's fighting against himself and his kingdom and because of this his kingdom is not going to last why would satan destroy what he's building in other words jesus tells them straight up your accusations are false and ridiculous they are illogical they don't make sense their logic is faulty Jesus exposes it and the religious leaders are left speechless Jesus doesn't end there this is getting really interesting guys See it? It's getting interesting. Family think he's crazy. Religious leaders, oh my gosh, demon. Jesus is like, that is the weirdest, wackest thing you can end. He just proves them wrong. And now Jesus doesn't stop there. He could have and just walked off and dropped the mic, right? But he's going to say something else. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. It says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Unless unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. What does that mean? just seems so odd, isn't it? So odd. Although this verse can be difficult to understand from a first reading, if we look closer, if we reflect on it, or this is what he's saying is best understood as a parable explaining Jesus' mission. In other words, Jesus is saying, Satan is the strong man. Okay, His house is the spear of influence he um, has in the world. Okay, And the plunder and the goods are the captives, are the millions of people he's holding captive. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I came to storm Satan's kingdom through my life, through my death, through, through my resurrection, so that I may provide forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all those who trust in me. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I am stronger than Satan. And my incarnation, my coming to earth, my beginning, my ministry of proclamation and deliverance and all of that is me beginning to destroy Satan and all of his works. So Jesus appealed to a logical argument to answer the religious leaders, and they've been speechless, okay? Scratching their heads, what's going on? But he did more than expose their false accusations. He went on to explain the seriousness and potential consequences of what they had just said. Look at verses 28 to 30. Jesus carries on and says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So all sins will be forgiven. And he goes on to say, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And it concludes by saying, For they were saying, He, was, he has an unclean spirit. Alright. The topic of this passage has had a lot of press. Really has. It's commonly referred to as the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. Basically, the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a sin so severe, God is not willing to forgive. Most people have heard about the unforgivable sin, but only a few understand what it actually means. And this lack of understanding has left many good Christians deeply troubled because of fear that something grave they have done before or after their conversion might be that sin. I've been there. When I look back at my life, mainly before I was saved, after I got saved, I've had these moments where I'm like, man, I did some ugly, wicked, sinful things. And I question whether God has truly forgiven me. And I have at times began to entertain the fact that I have sinned in a way God will never forgive. And I'm sure some of you here have had that experience. So what's the unforgivable sin? What is this sin that is so wicked God is not willing to forgive? First, Before we answer that question, and this will help us answer it, let's talk about what it's not. R. Kent Hughes, who is a well-known pastor and author, helps us here. He says, the unforgivable sin is not cursing the Holy Spirit. It is not taking the Lord's name in vain, though that is certainly a vile sin. It is not adultery or sexual perversion, it is not murder, even multiple murders, or genocide. And so, what he's saying there um, it, it, it is based um, on verse 28. And verse 28 tells us that God is willing to forgive all sins, right? That's what it says. Am I reading something? Uh, you guys got the same Bible? so what it says. And so what he's hitting on is that God is willing and able to forgive all sins, even murder. And this is true because I'm sure you may know, you may have heard of people that are Christians that love Jesus that have had a very, Colorful and ugly past. But guess what? The reality they're currently living in is that God has forgiven them for every sin they've committed. What then is Jesus talking about? What is blasphemy against the Holy What is the eternal sin? Simply put, the one sin which God cannot forgive it's a refusal to accept the witness of the Holy Spirit to who Jesus was and what he had come to do and then submit their lives to him. Let me read that again. Simply put, okay? The one sin which God cannot forgive is a refusal to accept the witness of the Holy Spirit to who Jesus was and what he had come to do and then submit their lives to it. Jesus had been driving out demons out of people by the power of the Holy Spirit and instead of recognizing the source of Jesus' power and accepting him as God's son, the religious leaders accused him of being possessed By the devil and driving demons out in the power of the devil. And so what they were doing was attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. Now that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Why? One author defines it in this way and they nail it. They say the unpardonable... Unforgivable sin is not some particularly grievous sin committed by a Christian before or after accepting Christ, nor is it thinking or saying something terrible about the Holy Spirit. Rather, it is deliberately resisting the Holy Spirit's witness and invitation to turn to Jesus until death ends all opportunity. One of the ways a man is in danger of committing this sin is when their life is marked by a stubborn resistance to Jesus which eventually expresses itself in treating him as the ultimate evil of their lives. So the question is, have there been people that have committed the unforgivable sin? The answer is yes. There have been Men and women who have rejected Jesus so often, and because of this, their hearts became unable to believe. Arkane Hughes tells this story in one of his books. He says, several years ago, a pastor visited a hospital at 3.30 a.m. to see a man he had known for some years, The doctor had said the man was dying, so the pastor paid him a visit to see the status of his relationship with Jesus, okay? So what pastors do? Someone's on their deathbed, hey, I've got to get over there just to pray with them and make sure that everything's okay with their relationship with Jesus. And when he gets there, um, um, he says, oh, he said, um, the man responds to the pastor and says, oh, Um, As far as Jesus is concerned, I've always believed in God, and I know everything is good between me and Jesus. And so the pastor asks him and says, What do you believe about Jesus? I've known God all my life, the man said, and I've tried to observe godly standards. I've been honest in business, and I've worked hard. My friend, says the pastor, I wouldn't be here if I weren't your friend. Answer a straight question. How is it between you and Jesus? To which the man replied, I've never made a place in my life for Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. If I were to believe in Jesus, it would upset everything in my philosophy and my life, and I would have to rethink everything about me. By the grace of God, the pastor said, you have that kind of time. Rethink this. Repent and believe in Jesus. No, the man said, I will die without acknowledging Jesus as king of my life. Why then do you think Jesus died? Asked the pastor. Oh, I understand he died for sins. Your sins, said the pastor. Perhaps, perhaps, said the man. But it's too late in my life to rethink the place of Jesus in my life. And he died. This well-informed man died rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior of his life. So let me ask you guys a question. What do you believe about Jesus? If you're here and you've been resisting Jesus as king of your life, All of this is making it clear that you are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And that's a very dangerous position to be in because the longer you stay there, the harder your heart will become and the more entrenched you will become. And like the man who was on his deathbed, you may find yourself in the position where forgiveness will not come. Not because Jesus doesn't offer it, but because you're so entrenched in your belief and resistance of Jesus' love and grace for you, you can't find your way back. Think about this. It is, as long as you are alive, As long as you are alive you have an opportunity to respond to the grace and love of Jesus. So my encouragement to you is don't wait till tomorrow to surrender your life to Jesus. Don't wait till you're old and gray to make Jesus the king of your life. Let today be the day you decide to follow Jesus. Let Today be the day where you quit rejecting Jesus and begin to accept him as your king. As the king of your life. And if you do, you can be assured that your sins will be forgiven. All your sins, no matter how bad or how ugly, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. God is willing and able to forgive. And how can I be certain of this? Look back at verse 28. It says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. What does this mean? This means that if you are not a Christian, the opportunity for you to be forgiven for all of your sins, the opportunity to enter into a lifelong relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ is absolutely available for you today. What it also means that if you are a Christian, God's grace... And mercy and forgiveness is readily available for you. If you're a Christian, all you ever know from now because of all that Jesus has done is God's grace. Don't downplay the grace and mercy of Jesus. He is willing to forgive. All your sins can be forgiven. They can be forgiven if you acknowledge them as acts of rebellion against the holy God. Sin is basically us, if you look at the core of sin, is basically us choosing to live our lives apart from God. It's saying, God, thank you, but no thank you. I can live my life any way you want, any way I want. That sin is choosing to live life for yourself. And God wants us to acknowledge that. And God wants us to repent of that. Repentance means I'm going this way. I'm living this way. Oh, I realize that how I'm living and what I'm doing is not right. And I'm going to turn from there and look at Jesus and say, Jesus, there are so many things in my life I I don't want to do because they dishonor you. And I need you to help me realize that in you, I have forgiveness of sins. And I also need you to empower me through your spirit to overcome these sinful habits in my life. So, the scene changes again. And Jesus' family are in focus again. Verse 31 lets us know that Jesus' mother and brothers have showed up outside and they want to speak to him. Verse 32 says that he is surrounded by a crowd and the crowd say to him, Hey Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside seeking you and they want to talk to you. In verse 33 and 34, Jesus responds by saying, My mother... And my brothers are those who are sitting around me and have decided to live for me. And so Jesus concludes by saying in verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. God's ultimate will for me, God's ultimate will for you and everyone on this planet is to acknowledge who Jesus is and begin to radically live for him. In these verses, we come face to face with who Jesus truly is. Jesus is the hope of a broken creation. Jesus is the stronger man exercising power over evil. Jesus is the brother and friend to all who believe And so the response is you can respond in two different ways. You can silently in your heart think that Jesus is a madman. Think that Jesus is radical. seeing that Jesus was this first century historical figure who did some cool things and that is it. Or you can give your life to him and allow his life to be lived through your lives so that you can, with all believers, celebrate the grace that has included you in his family. And so with these words, Jesus looking around and saying, oh, he's my brother, he's my sister, he's my mother, and all of that. What he's basically saying is that your, your biological family, okay? Your biological family is secondary in value to your spiritual family, okay? Basically, this is radical, If you are a Christian, absolutely love your family. Absolutely. But here Jesus is saying, your identity has changed. You are first and foremost a Christian, a Christ follower. You are first and foremost connected to me. Your identity has changed your life needs to become all about me and you are now a member of my family. And that changes everything. That changes how you view the church. Okay? That changes how you view the local church. Again, as a church, this year we talked about the new vision for us to be a spiritual family on mission and we're using those words intentionally because we want all of us to understand who we really are. And we are truly a family. So Eleanor and I, when we um, sold everything in London and moved to um, America in 2010, um, we left our family and we left our friends. And eight years later, I'm not kidding you, Okay? We love our family and everything we do. I have to say that because my mom listens to this podcast. <laughs> but we have found that God has helped us realize how the, the reality of how the church is truly family. It's been incredible. And this has led us to believe that you, me, any one of us, any Christian can go to any part of the world Right and meet Christians and suddenly feel like family. And some of you guys, is testament to this. You've, you know, there's a new church plant and we have new people coming in and new people assimilating into our culture. And for those who are new or those who weren't there from the very and came after, you've got to realize that like the first Sunday or the few Sundays you came, it, it was kind of seamless. You had a lot in common, and it's amazing. But the interesting thing about being a family is soon we realize that we're not perfect, okay? And soon we realize that we can get on each other's nerves. And when that happens, there's a temptation for us to disconnect from the family, eject ourselves from the church community. But if we look through the new, t- if we look at what God is calling us to, God is calling us to a commitment to himself, okay? Commitment to Jesus Christ, And the more committed we are to Jesus Christ, the more connected we are to our spiritual family, no matter how annoying. I'm going to leave that there. Right? And so that's what Jesus is saying. C.S. Lewis, I love him a lot because he's British. In his classic work, Mere Christianity presents this challenge. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. (laughs) He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a porched egg or else he would be the devil of hell. has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So the choice is yours. Whether you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, the question is, who is Jesus to you? Has Jesus slowly, gradually become someone you read about? Or has Jesus become the true king of your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your word. May you, through this time, inspire us and cause us to treasure Christ more and more. And in his name.